All right, Psalm 136. That's where we're at, Psalm 136. No need to speak to wounds. God heals wounds. He doesn't bring any pain that's not needed, so let's just move on. Uh, Man, glad you guys are here. We're trying to learn how to move from being inconsistent, erratic worshipers of God into becoming everyday worshipers of God. Uh, that's challenging. It's, it's difficult. Life gets busy. Details get in the way at times. And worship can feel like something that needs to be programmed by the professionals instead of something that's consistently done by the believer. Uh, we believe that you were created to mirror God in worship. In whatever you do, as the book of Colossians would teach us, whether you eat or you drink, we're to do it to the glory of God. So everything is an opportunity to give worship or dishonor to God. And we are trying as a faith family to figure out how to decompartmentalize our faith so that all of life can become more normal and filled with acts of worship towards God. Whether it's singing, driving, working, parenting, uh, neighboring, whatever that looks like, my goal for you is that you would see it and push into the difficulty of figuring out how to make it an act of worship of God. Now we're looking at Hebrew. Uh, So if you're wondering what we've been studying, the Old Testament's written in the Hebrew language, and there are a lot of uh, different words that are used in this book called Psalms to give a language of praise to life's experiences to the God that is the God over all of life. And so we see lament in the Psalms, meaning there are times where it is good to express sadness as an act of worship and declaring our need for and dependency on God to lift the sorrow and bring joy back. Uh, We see words that acknowledge thanksgiving and honor to God. We see words that give us a language of surrender to God. And so we've been studying these different Hebrew words in these Psalms so that you can develop a language to express worship and gratitude through all of life's experiences to God's. It won't, uh, to God, not God's, plural. No, that's not where we're at. We believe in one God, God the Father, uh, who, God the Father, God the Son, who are one. I'm going to have to allow alternatarian theology now for us to remind us because of one blurb. Here, here's my drive, my, my passion in this moment is that you would naturally begin to lift a hallelujah, naturally begin to lift worship to God, and it would not just be something trapped within an hour a week here, which is uncomfortable for a lot of you, uh, because you are really comfortable with worship being something others do, but you rarely partake in. And I'm trying to convince you that the Bible states that your creation was for the very point of worshiping God. And for some of us, we're going to get to eternity and realize that we are under practice at what matters in eternity. Uh, maybe over practice for what mattered here on this side of life, lifting weights, being healthy, you know, like conquering the day, achieving goals, making money, having a great savings account, not bad things. Those have a temporal benefit to them. But my goal for you is that you would become more developed in what will be of an eternal value to you. And that is living in a worship relationship with the Creator Almighty. Are you tracking with me? Last week, we began looking at a word called Hallel. It's where we get the root word for hallelujah. Uh, The idea of the root word Hallel is that we are to acclaim, boast of, and glory in. That's what we just did in song a minute ago. 
He's waymaker. He's miracle worker. This is who he is. This is his character. It is constant. It is unchanging. We need to be reminded of it. We're not reminding him of it, but we need to be reminded of it because some of you need a way. Because some of you need someone who can make something that doesn't exist. Because for some of you, you need God to miraculously do something something that nature says can't happen in your life. And so from time to time, it's good for us to be reminded, to boast in the fact that God did it And there's no reason for us to think that he changed so that he won't do it now that we're here where we're at. Are you tracking with me? And so we looked at the first four verses that speak to the uniqueness of God's character. He is good, verse 1. He is God of gods, verse 2. He is Lord of lords, verse 3. And verse 4 reminds us that he alone is the worker of wonder or the, the miracle maker and worker. And so we have this unique God. You can't compare him to anyone, therefore you should give him uh, a level of confidence and faith that is reserved for him and unlike what you would give to any other created thing on this earth. Now from that, to bring the hallelujah out of you, the psalmist is now going to break this into three parts. Two parts are going to recall what God has done. One part's going to start with this word us. And it brings us into the praise. So it starts by reminding us of God's character. Then verse 5 to 9 is going to speak to his creative power. So we're going to look at that. Then verses 10 to right around verse 20, it speaks to his providence over history. Because sometimes in current events, you need to be reminded that God's never lost control of history. Let me just remind some of you that we are to pray for the election that's coming up on Tuesday, but you should not stop no matter what happens on Tuesday. Pray. Everyone wants to pray right around election time, and then you never pray for your leaders again as if God lost control. He appoints everyone in leadership. Go read Romans 14. It'll really wreck a lot of the way some of you act on social media. So we look at his providence over creation. Then we end with being reminded of his love towards us, this powerful, good God that is Lord over all, that's unique in his ability to work wonders, that created the earth, that's been providential over all time to bring it to a good ending for his glory, now has an us, a people that he has chosen for his possession, and we in Christ Jesus have been adopted as sons and daughters into the kingdom of God. We are a new creation. We are forgiven and marked by his blood, not by our behavior, not by our past, and not by our failure. And now as his chosen people of mercy, we're reminded of this tagline that's at the end of each verse of this psalm, which is his loving kindness or his loving mercy or whatever your translation says, endures forever. And that was our goal last week that you would, no matter where you were, be reminded that his faithful love endures forever. So with that, let's pick it up in verse 5 as he moves into expressing why the Hallel, this great Hallel, hallelujah, should come from us. It says this, give thanks to him who made the heavens so skillfully. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to him who placed the earth among the waters. His faithful love endures forever. What's the motivation behind his creation? His faithful love that endures forever. Verse 7. Give thanks to him who made the heavenly lights. Why? His faithful love endures forever. The sun to rule the day because his faithful love endures forever. And the moon and the stars to rule the night. His faithful love endures forever forever. So we read that and we're like, yeah, God made stuff. Because you and I have an all problem. We struggle 
with thinking too much of ourselves and too little of the God that made us. It's a human problem. In fact, there's research that recently came out from all the uh, pew pulpit uh, statistics and research that said this generation that's coming up, their greatest challenge is they do not ever feel in awe of anything. There's no awe. Why? How do you get there? When you become so big that you think you're the thing that the world revolves around and the thing to be worshipped, you stop worshipping what really created the world. What comes with it is crippling anxiety and worry because you now think it's up to you instead of the Lord that leads you. So instead of the Lord leading you, become your own Lord. So then your heavy burden, instead of taking on the light burden of God with the burdens of this world, thinking that it's on you to build a platform in order for you to be worshipped and honored, but then you start aging and you get older and it doesn't happen as fast as you thought it would happen. So then the pressure begins to melt, all because you don't know who you are because you've yet to stand in awe of the God who made you, who in his presence alone can give you the peace of understanding and the knowledge of knowing what you were put on this earth to do. So let me help you get your all back just for a minute because your britches may be big, but they're, ain't, but they're not this big. When we begin to speak of creation, we are given an apologetic about the power and the magnitude of God that should bring us to great hallel, great praise in his presence. Uh, if you've done any study, NASA provides images and lots of information about this creation. Uh, we get stuff like this. There's this place, uh, this galaxy that stands above us called the Whirlpool Galaxy. I believe you have a picture of it. There it is right there. It's pretty, right? But that doesn't give you any of the scope and scale. It sits perpendicular to us on Earth. It has in it about 300 billion stars. Just to give you perspective, that is 100 billion, or, or, that's, that's about 298 billion more than the Powerball. In case you were paying attention to that. For godly purposes, because I know a lot of y'all have been promising God a lot of charity that may or may not be... God. Three hundred billion stars that are in this galaxy. Uh, just to give you a scope of it, it is thirty-one million light years away. Does that make sense to you yet? No. All right. Let me break it down some for you. A light year is five point eight eight trillion miles. So it's about from here to Texas. It's a joke. A light year is five point eight eight trillion miles. So to get there, what you would need to do is you take 31 and multiply it by 5.8 trillion, and that is how far the Whirlpool Galaxy is for us. So 31 times 5.8 trillion, that number is how many miles we are away. If you want to go on a journey to the Whirlpool Galaxy, uh, you know, Elon and some of the other guys are doing a lot of work, Richard Branson trying to get us up into the stars. Right now we go up, we crest the earth, and then you come back down, and that costs you like your entire life savings. So if you want to get a little further... What you would have to do is go 186,000 miles per second for 31 million years. That didn't happen by an accident or by an explosion according to the scriptures. The scriptures say God spoke and it was. I speak a lot of things that I mean over my household that are usually met with laughter and rebellion. My words don't often change atmospheres, much less bring into existence what doesn't exist. 
But the word of God went out and created the heavens and the earth. He created the heavens according to this great Hillel skillfully. And in the heavens what we see are galaxies like this whirlpool galaxy. Now, what's amazing about the, whirl, the, the whirlpool galaxy is this core that you cannot see really clear. And so we finally got the technology through telescopes to zoom in on what's that big thing right there. And when you look in it, that's what you see. Standing perpendicular over earth. Now I know we like to Christianize everything. Everyone gets like, oh, it's a cross in the sky. I saw an angel. Oh, it's Tess from Touched by an Angel. The Lord's must be with us. Let's go buy a car. Okay, like I, I, I am by no means trying to, to say. But what's interesting in the eye is if you zoom in on it, it looks like a cross with someone on it. Perpendicular over time and over the earth. That's the Whirlpool galaxy, the white core. Now, let me help us scale this song because that's so far away, it's very difficult to comprehend the size and the magnitude and the work of God. Uh, our galaxy, where Earth is, has one star, one really big star in it. Now, that star is called the sun. Doesn't it look like the Death Star blowing up? Okay. Uh, it is 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit on the surface. It is only 93 million miles away. It has a radius of 432,288 miles. On top of that, in comparison for scale's sake, if the sun were 15 feet in diameter, the earth would be the size of a golf ball. So just imagine the sun being all of this. Then take a golf ball and hold it up, and that's you. Golf ball. Like, and let me, let me make sure you understand. Like, you is not like you're the golf ball. Like, you're on the golf ball, a speck that's there for a short time, not for a long time, a vapor. And, and the Bible teaches us that that speck on that earth in comparison to that magnificent, huge sun, which isn't the largest star in the universes around us, but it is a star in our universe that stands in perpendicular uh, relation to this whirlpool galaxy where there's billions of stars that look down on us, which in the white core has a cross that's shining right at us in its eye, that you were created in God's image. You were. I mean, th think about this. It's, it's like you going over the top for the, the most minute of details of all of your creation. And we're told that God chose to send his son to redeem people like you. My point is not to make you small, but it's to, in the smallness, help you to understand the greatness of our God so that you would come to a place of recognizing, I don't have to hold the world up because God knows I can't. I don't have to fix this because God knows I can't. See, this is what all does. It reminds us of God's greatness so that we can be encouraged in his presence to not run in faithlessness away from him or to not carry burdens that were never meant for us to carry. It's the beauty of awe. And so the text lays out for us this. Now, everybody look at your skin. Everybody see your skin? It's really cool. It's made up of cells. Some of you did a project on those things. Remember that when you made it like a, a cell and it had, yeah, mine was gummy so I could eat it later. Now, what holds your skin together is a thing called laminin. A guy named Louis Giglio did a lot of study on this. It's really cool. Laminin is literally holding your skin together. Without laminin, you got no skin. You just kind of like become like an oozy thing from Ninja Turtles, and you go back into the sewer. This is a really good science lesson, I'm telling you. Yeah. That's why I'm not a teacher. 
Um, <laughs> laminin is literally, when you look at it, little crosses. So the whirlpool galaxy over us in its eye has a cross in its eye. And then you look at your skin on this little earth that, by the way, is the size of a golf ball. If this entire thing were the sun and you're a speck on that golf ball for a short amount of time, the Bible says it's like you're a vapor. You're here today and gone tomorrow. Uh, it's like grass. It withers away. So, so you're there, and on you, just so you know how divinely touched, how divinely sparked this entire thing is, he gives you laminin, which is little crosses that hold your little skin together, so that literally on your skin or in the sky, you both know that it's his cross that defines all of life. <laughs> we were created to be in awe of this God. You see Psalm 33, 6 says, The Lord merely spoke, and the heavens were created. He breathed the word, and all the stars were born. Are you beginning to understand who you're messing with here? I know some of you came in, and you're hearing Waymaker, and nothing's moving, and you're like, but maybe, maybe he's just not going to move. You don't understand. He, at his word, created everything that can be seen and known. One theologian went on to say it this way, the chapter declares God's unique relation to every part of creation. We may conceive of no created thing, no existing thing to which the assurance is not attached. God made it. God ordained it. God arranged it. The chapter includes all the components of the earth's crust, all the treasures of the mighty deep, all the elements of the atmosphere, all the hosts of heaven, from the ruling sun to the faintest distant star, all the multiplied forms of vegetable life, all the higher forms of animal life, and all all the, uh, and all the yet higher forms of human life. And the declaration of God's creation includes all the natural laws and forces that act in creation. And every bit of it is something he looks at and says, mine. Mine. So, praise him. Because creation is constantly reminding you that his loving kindness endures forever. But just in case that's so far and creation is distant and it doesn't relate to you, the closeness of this powerful and magnificent God, he goes on in verse 10 and begins to recap some recent history for the people in this psalm to remind them of God's faithful hand over them. Look at what he says. Verse 10. Give thanks to him who killed the firstborn of Egypt. His faithful love endures forever. He brought Israel out of Egypt. His faithful love endures forever. He acted with a strong hand and a powerful arm. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to him who parted the Red Sea. His faithful love endures forever. He led Israel safely through because his faithful love endures forever. But he hurled Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. You know why? Because his faithful love endures forever. So I'm like, this is going to be complex, Pastor. Yep, it's going to be fun. Give thanks to him who led his people through the wilderness, because his faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to him who struck down mighty kings, because his faithful love endures forever. He killed powerful kings. It wasn't an accident. God was behind it. God sustains life and gives life, and ultimately it is God's to take. His faithful love endures forever. Then it lists some kings. Sion, king of the Amorites, his faithful love endures forever. And Ah, king of Bashan, his faithful love endures forever. God gave the land of these kings as inheritance. His faithful love endures forever. And a special possession to his servant Israel because his faithful love endures forever. Now, we read this, and it brings up... Our sense of justice, which, let's be honest, is warped. 
Because every single one of us believe that we're better stewards of the $2 billion on the Powerball than everybody else in here. We believe that anything in our hands is better. We always think that, we always overestimate our goodness and demonize others. There's been all kinds of studies that have been done on it, but we always think we're a little bit better than everybody else around us. That things are just a little bit better in our hands than in someone else's hands. We have this constant battle that we have to fight of thinking that we see things justly when in reality we see them in part. So let, let me be very clear. Some of you read that and you go, this doesn't seem nice, smoting Egyptians and kings as a reason to praise God. That makes me want to fear God. Now I would submit to you that a responsible response to God is an understanding of the full dynamics of his character. He is gracious and just and loving. Like he is love. However, he is righteous and just and true. And these do not contradict each other, but they are part of the same God. So we've got to understand some things when you read this. That in his work and in his providence, as he moves, there are times where we see things that seem where we will see things that may seem unjust to us, but it may be because we have a limited view of God in us. You see, if your only belief in God is that He is nice, then His return is going to come as a shock. Because Revelation speaks of a man on a white horse with King of Kings and Lord of Lords tattooed on his right hand. I don't think it's gone tattoo. And out of his tongue comes truth and justice and judgment. And he will separate the powerful uh, of this world from the powerless in this world. Those who are in Christ and those who are without Christ. And he will bring righteous judgment on the world. So let me be very clear. God is gracious and just. Both. God is merciful and righteous. Both. Egypt oppressed Israel as slaves. Israel cried out to God enslaved and God heard their cry and sent Moses to deliver them you see the king's mischief mentioned worship in the later part of the text they worship little g-gods that took the work of God big g and attributed to an idol that they had created for their own glory and their own platform you see this story over history reminds us that God is judge over all of history and you need to understand God will judge some of you have tattooed on your body only God can judge me and you've got the Bible verse response underneath it let me be very clear with you as a reminder he will he will all of history will give an account for its actions and it'll either be accounted to the cross of Christ as a means for payment and for us to be given what we don't deserve or it will be accounted to ourselves as actions we willfully chose and did this is why we call it the gospel you don't get what you deserve. You don't want what you deserve right now. So stop with this weird version of some kind of cosmic, like, uh, I get back what I put out into the universe. Like, like, stop with that. You get grace from God. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Mercy upon mercy. His loving kindness is new every morning. So some would say this doesn't seem nice. And number two, some of you would say this doesn't seem fair. God takes some and gives them a land and takes land away from another group of people. Well, here's the deal. If it's mine, first of all, I get to do with it whatever I want to. So if I choose to give it to somebody else and it's mine, then I'm only stewarding what's mine. See, a lot of us, our problem is we're like, well, it's theirs. No, it never was theirs. 
It's his. It's always been his. And for a lot of you, this is your problem when it comes to worshiping God. You believe God took what was yours. No, it never was yours. That spouse wasn't yours. That house wasn't yours. That job wasn't yours. That money wasn't yours. That health wasn't yours. That life wasn't yours. It all rightly started with the God who created everything, and it rightly will stand before God as judge over everything, and it is his in the in-between to choose to do with whatever he wants to do with it. So for some of you, you just need a little reminder, especially the millennials in the room, okay? Participation ribbon, okay? Let me remind you (laughs) that you are wonderfully and fearfully made before God, but you are not God. You don't own this stuff. You are borrowing it. Breathe in. You didn't make it. You don't sustain it. Look, your heart just beat again. You're still here. You didn't tell it to do that. But God, who knit you together in your mother's womb, is a God of grace and mercy and love and kindness. And his desire is that the entire world would see his glory and worship and know him. So we we got to set some perspective around some difficult texts that lay out the history of Israel and how God moved because he had to move some people out of the way for his story to move forward. And in his providence, the driving force of this whole thing, and this is why it is kindness, was that in every step he took, it was a step towards bringing Jesus as our Messiah to deliver us from what entrapped us in sin. He made a people who were not a people his people so that his glory would be poured out on them so that the nations would see and know the goodness and the work of God. He made a promise through the nation of Israel and what he would do through that. So let me just really quick, really quick remind you, Job 1.21 reminds us of this little truth. I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. Whose was it? The Lord's, not yours. On top of that, I was reminded this past week from a Bible teacher that fair is not a biblical value. It's a man-made value. God is not fair. And you don't want him to be fair. Like, like, I just want fairness. No, you don't. You want grace. You don't know what you're talking about. You see, God is just. God is good. And God offers grace, which is always undeserved and unmerited. If God gave you what you deserved, you would not make it. Some of you think, if I just got what I deserved, I would make it. No, you wouldn't. It's like arguing with someone who's saying they're the real Santa, and I feel like I'm Buddy the Elf. Santa's coming tomorrow. You're not the real Santa. Yes, I am. No, he's not. <laughs> I want what I deserve. No, you don't. You don't want what you deserve. You don't, you don't want that at all. Let me get you to think about this section of Scripture a little bit differently. Consider what would have happened if God had not delivered Israel. Have you ever stopped to think about that side of the story? See, in in the moment, it seemed like God was being mean, but in actuality, God was being kind because there was a greater story and a Savior and a Messiah that was coming. But if God doesn't deliver Israel, it never happens. If God did not move and save Israel, there would be no Moses. With no Moses, there would be no law. (laughs) Without the law, there would be no understanding of unrighteousness and the need for a righteous Savior to deliver us. With no law, there would be no kingdom, which means there would be no King David. Which means through King David, there will be no Messiah or king who would come and establish his throne and his government would increase forever. You see, with no Messiah, there would be no salvation and deliverance of the world. So, stop assuming that your current event is the whole story. Because God throughout time has proven that he tells his story in spite of difficult times. He tells his story even when it's a good time. 
but his story goes on. You see, God's heart is to seek and save the lost, and that's the same God in the New Testament as in the Old Testament. And his way of bringing that story to fruition may be misunderstood in a moment, but it will be clear in time. So what we have is a God who created everything, so worship. We have a God who is providential in all of history, so worship. And then look at verse 23, because this is where you and I come into the story. He says, he remembered us, present day, in our weakness. Some of you are really strong. Like you've, I mean, and I mean that. I'm not setting you up for something different. Like you're strong. Like you've endured a lot of hell over the last three years. And you've come through some terrible stuff. And you're tired and exhausted because in that, you've got this life hard knocks lesson of learning how to endure in the Lord and endure in yourself. And you did a lot of enduring in yourself. So you're exhausted and trying to overcome it by yourself and carrying the weight by yourself. And you need to know that he remembers us in our weakness because his faithful love endures forever. And look at this. He saves us from our enemies. No weapon formed against me shall. But some of you are sweating the weapons. Some of you are sweating the enemy. Because you've not been reminded that out of his mouth, everything that can be seen was created. And that there's nothing that exists on heaven or uh, uh, in the heavens or on the earth that God doesn't rightly say belongs to him. So he remembered us in our weakness because his faithful love endures forever. He saved us from our enemies because his faithful love endures forever. He gives food to every living thing. That's not just speaking of like physical food. It's to say that everything we need is found in him and his provision and in his providence and in his goodness. Therefore, give thanks to the God of heaven. You know why? Because even today and even now, his faithful love endures forever it's the word of god for the people of god where i come from we would say thanks be to god where i come from we would say thanks be to god where i come from when we hear the word of god preached by the spirit of god through the work of man we would then end it by saying thanks be to god thanks be to god for his love and kindness endures forever. What is God's plan for you? That you would see his glory and experience his mercy and his love in your life today. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I want to invite you to come forward in this time of response and talk to someone on our prayer team about what it means to put your faith in this good, powerful, almighty, yet a God of detail and love who has offered his son as a propitiation. It's a big word. So you're like, we shouldn't use big theological terms because it just we don't know what they necessarily mean. But you can go to Starbucks and order a mocha frappuccino, whatever, with two pumps of something. And like, you can memorize that. So I think we can memorize propitiation, which means that Jesus came as the payment for our sin. Let me be very clear. Apart from Jesus, you ain't right. Most of y'all with Jesus, y'all got y'all a long way from right. I mean, a long way. But my encouragement, my admonishment to you is that this powerful God has not called us to run from his presence, but has invited us into his presence because he's a God of love and grace. 
And if you don't have a relationship with him, we would invite you to that today. If you need prayer, let me remind you that one of the most active, common ways in which we worship God is we bring all of our concerns, needs, burdens before the Lord. Why? Because he needs to hear and be informed? No, because you need to be reminded that he's still God, that he's still great, that he's not absent from his creation, but he's at work in his creation. We serve a way-making God. We serve a miracle-moving God. So stop assuming that the answer is no. And stop assuming that just because you knock faintly once in prayer that God isn't wanting to do something in your life that is greater than what you can imagine or perceive to be possible with whatever is going on in your life. Let's bring it to God consistently and faithfully. And so if you need prayer, we invite you to come to the altar and be prayed for. But here's the goal. Here's the goal. Sometime this week, you will be in a moment where your eyes go down and they stop looking up. Where where you begin to think that it's on you again. And in that moment, I want to remind you of the 136th Psalm that reminds you that you are not good, but you have a good God. That you are not God, but you have the God of gods. That you are not Lord, but you have the Lord of lords. That you're not a miracle maker, but the miracle maker is with you. That you're not the world's creator. You're not the world's creator, but the world's creator is with you. And you don't control time. You can't make it work for your good and your glory. But the God who works in time for his good and glory is at work in you. And then whenever you're feeling weak, you need to be reminded he loves the weak. Because weakness is an invitation for his strength. And whenever you begin to realize it's not on you and you lessen your grip on the world around you, you can open your hands to be filled with God's grip in you and through you. So though you are weak, he is strong. And you need a savior. You need a Savior, but be reminded in the 136th Psalm that you've received a Savior. His name is Jesus. His name is the name that every knee will bow, every power bows before. Isn't it funny that in the New Testament, the demons cower and bow in reverent fear before the people standing around Jesus even recognize what they're around? Everybody else is just like, what's this? And then the demonic man comes out of the tomb running naked, and he's on his face because he knows even at a distance what the Son of God is, even if he doesn't worship him. I ain't got time to preach that one. So may your words lift a hallelujah, a boast in the face of your adversary to the power and sufficiency of your God. In Jesus' name, let's stand, let's respond. Prayer team, you come forward.